You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Well, that was great. Oh, there's a time for everything, right? There's a time for everything. It's good to have a light moment. Thank you, Alex, wherever you scurried off to. Okay, hey, a little bit more of a serious note. Uh, if you're a dad or a grandfather or if you serve as a father figure uh, for someone else, would you stand up, please? Would you stand up? And if you are, well, stay standing, please, stay standing. And if you are near one of these individuals, could you just surround them and lay hands on them? And we're going to pray for them as a, as a body, okay? Let's make, sure that every, let's make sure every individual is represented here, okay? All right. Father, thank you for every dad and grandfather in this room and every man that serves as a father figure. This morning, I ask you to bless them and encourage them and to fill them with your spirit. And Father, let them see the significance of their role. For the men that need fresh wind to carry out that role, Father, rush on them this morning with power. For the men that need comfort, who have suffered challenges and setbacks they never dreamed of, Father, walk alongside them today. Father, for new dads like Alex, and many others here this morning that are filled with aspirations and fears. Help them to parent by faith and not fear. Love and not control. Father, help them to live in the tension of acceptance and accountability as they relate to their sons and daughters. As a church, Father, as a city, we beg you to raise up a generation of dads that love you first. And love you more than their children. And are a model for their kids of a genuinely loving life. Father, for every soul this morning grieving for a lost dad. Or for a lost child. Or the inability to conceive a child. Comfort them in a way that only the God of all comfort can. And Father, for every individual here this morning who never heard their father say, I love you. For every individual here this morning, Father, to whom their father broke their hearts, this morning we say, Father, that you are our loving Heavenly Father. And will you minister to them in a unique and passionate way? And Father, by your Spirit, will you bear witness to our spirit that we are children of God, that we are adopted into your family with full rights and privileges and bring freedom into our lives today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Love you, dads. Love all of you and keep up the good work, dads. Do you remember the 2002 movie Signs? Oh, man. Yeah, 2002. Wow. It's hard to believe it was that long ago. Mel Gibson, Joaquin Phoenix, 
directed by Shyamalan. Gibson plays a former minister who lost his faith after his wife died. As you think about the movie and you think, oh yeah, that's about aliens and crop circles, you're wrong. It was not. It was a movie about faith and doubt. When the purpose for his wife's death is revealed to save the life of his asthmatic son, Gibson's character regains his faith, and in the last scene, he returns to the priesthood. You know, one film critic commenting on Shyamalan's last movie, Glass, have not yet seen it, also tagged the movie about being faith versus doubt. Doubt is a struggle inside all of us. I've struggled with doubt often throughout my Christian life. One person wrote that the mental unrest of doubt is natural to faith. Trials of doubt can be a suffering that can purify and intensify our faith. Like a shadow reveals the presence of a body and light, a light, doubt is the negative space cast by faith in the brilliance of truth. There is a veil between heaven and earth. A physical chasm lies between us and God. He is spirit. He is invisible to the naked eye. Only with rare exception does anyone experience God with the five senses. So doubts do arise. And when they do arise, they disorient us. To disorient means to lose one's sense of direction, to make someone feel confused. And this is what doubt does. Up is no longer up. Down is no longer down. Now, doubts come in all shapes and sizes. Here are three categories of doubt. First are intellectual doubts. You were taught in Sunday school that God created the world. But in your high school biology class, you were told that God did not create the world, nor was God needed to create the world. All the processes of how we got here are not supernatural, but natural. Evolution certainly creates doubts, and doubts disorient. Another category are experiential doubts. Experiential means that I thought my life would turn out a certain way. I thought God would ensure certain good outcomes and prevent bad things from happening to me. I thought love from God would feel a certain way. And when that does not happen, that can stir doubt and can be disorienting. A third category of doubts are emotional doubts. I thought justice and fairness, basic decency, looked and felt a certain way. And when God's Word or events in history challenge my basic sense of fairness, it creates doubt. It is disorienting. This is the source of doubt presently in our culture as God's Word clashes with the kind of gender and sexual freedom that our culture seeks. This is all about justice, our view of justice, 
And indeed, it is packed with emotional volatility. Now, sometimes intellectual, experiential, emotional, sometimes our hardest doubts are an intersection of all three of these. Now, how does doubt relate to our messages from Luke? Last week, we witnessed Jesus doing the impossible. Interrupting a funeral by raising a dead man would, you would think, still anybody's doubts. But that was not the case. That was not the case. In the very next scene, doubt about Jesus surfaces from two camps. One camp is not so surprising. The other camp is very surprising. Between the two camps, they share four things related to doubt. One, they have seen and interacted with Jesus. Two, they have certain expectations of Jesus. Three, those expectations have not materialized. Four, therefore they doubt his claims. Now, Jesus responds in kind to each camp. And how he responds is very revealing about him and about us. So, here's an outline of this passage this morning. The first camp, or the first person, is John the Baptist and his doubt to which Jesus responds. Then Luke places alongside of John the Baptist's doubts, the doubts of the Pharisees. These are expressed and responded to by Jesus. So the comparison makes for a powerful lesson. This passage speaks to, addresses, how we deal with our doubts when Jesus does not meet our expectations. So, that's your outline for the talk. Go ahead and stand. And if you'd like to turn to page... 863 in the Pew Bible, I'm going to read, beginning at verse 18, our passage for this morning. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, these great miracles. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who were dressed in splendid clothing 
and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is of he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is God's word. Go ahead and take a seat. Thanks be to God for his word. So you thought Thomas was the only one that doubted. There were others. Our first official doubter is John the Baptist. This is terribly surprising. Now to appreciate the shock of this, we have to go backwards and appreciate John's past faith. It was unshakable. John had been convinced Jesus was the one. He baptized Jesus. He had a front seat for his baptism and the remarkable events of that day. He called Jesus early in his ministry the Lamb of God, manifesting a remarkable early insight. He rightly called Jesus the Son of God. John grasped the significance of prophetic history, that he was the forerunner for the Christ. He was a friend of the bridegroom, the Messiah. It did not bother him that he was losing his ministry to Jesus. He understood his role. All of this invites us to consider the depth of John's conviction and his faith. And it begs the question, what happened? How did doubts creep in? Well, if we could for a moment, Justin, go back to that slide about the four common experiences. And the thing that I believe has taken place is that some of John's expectations about Jesus have gone unmet. I think that's what's happening. And those unmet expectations were disorienting. Now, what were those expectations? While we are not told specifically, there are some strong clues given here in the context. For example, in Luke 3, John the Baptist had said Jesus was coming with fire. He was coming to bring judgment. And yet here was John languishing in the prison, a good man, so to speak, languishing in the prison of an evil man. Now wait a minute, you say, how do we know that? How do we know John's in prison? Well, we know that from the parallel passage, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, that Herod had imprisoned him. That is the context here. He's in prison. And remarkably, 
We learned last week, Jesus' ministry was not filled with judgment, but astonishing mercy. Judgment wasn't raining down on Herod and the Pharisees who had first opposed John and now Jesus. That must have been confusing. Is it possible John perceived his own mission and Jesus' as a failure? Yet another possibility. John was an ascetic. His approach to life was as an ascetic. He was given to a strategy of preaching, then withdrawing back to the wilderness. He lived a very Spartan life. But Jesus' strategy was different. It was one of penetration. He mixed freely with sinners. He met them on their ground. He went to their parties. He feasted with them. And you have to wonder, was Jesus' lifestyle and approach to meeting others confusing to John? We've already seen it was confusing to John's disciples. All of these are possible reasons why John began to wonder, is Jesus really the one? Now add to that, this was literally John's dark night of the soul. For months he was isolated, alone, without light, deep within the labyrinth of Herod's prison. Now as a little short parenthesis here this morning, as an aside, we can learn something here that Jesus and John represent two different strategies of evangelism. We do ourselves no good when we criticize those who have a different strategy than our own. Some people need a John the Baptist approach of thunder and lightning to respond to the gospel. Now, Jesus could also bring the thunder, but he was also a true friend of those far from God. Others need that approach. Friends, as long as there is love, be slow to criticize how someone else shares their faith. Okay? Back to John and his doubts. I'm arguing that John's expectations have not been met, and these are the sources of his doubts. And now he wonders, Jesus, are you really the one? Let's look now at Christ's response. Jesus answers John only as he can. He doesn't correct him. He doesn't chide John for a moment of weakness. He does not reply with disgust. John, you know who I am. What's wrong with you? He gently points to what he has been doing. He speaks of his supernatural miracles. And the ones that he chooses are not chosen randomly. If you went back to Isaiah the prophet, for example, chapters 29, chapters 35, chapters 61, they foretell what the Messiah will do when he comes. The Messiah will do the very things Jesus has been doing. So it is Jesus' turn now to take a surprising twist. He turns back to the crowd to defend John, to praise him, saying there's no human being greater than John. Look back at verse 24. Verse 24, he said, Who did you go out to see when you saw John preaching? A reed swaying in the wind? Someone with vast 
wealth and influence? No. You went to see a prophet. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means is that John was not a reed swaying in the wind. In other words, John was not caught up in the latest and most popular fads of the day. You didn't go listen to John because he was parroting the latest groupthink. Nor did John have wealth or status or for some reason you wanted to impress him. No, you went because he was a prophet. You went because you believed he had a word from God. He had something of significance, something of depth to see. So you traveled to the wilderness to go hear him. You wanted to understand what God was doing in your life. Jesus in verse 27 says, yes, he was a prophet and far more than that. He quotes the prophet Malachi, who 700 years earlier had quoted that there would be a forerunner to the Christ. Jesus says that forerunner is none other than John the Baptist. So, this is the first part of our outline. John the Baptist's doubts and the way Jesus responds. Now let's look at the second part of the outline. And that is the doubt of the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the lawyers. Now these are not lawyers as you know them. There weren't lawyer jokes back then. These are the lawyers who helped interpret the Mosaic Law. Now, they were unlike John in that they never possessed faith in the first place. But they were like John in that the Messiah did not meet their expectations. They wanted someone with military flash and charisma. Jesus came in weakness. They wanted someone impressive. Jesus came in poverty as a peasant. They wanted academic credentials. He was uneducated. They wanted their enemies destroyed. Jesus said we should love our enemies, turn the other cheek, and not resist evil. They gloried in the appearance of their moral purity, took pride in their separation from sinners. Jesus welcomed sinners, ate with them, and associated with them freely. Now, they had already rejected John, and because they rejected John, their hearts were not prepared to receive the kingdom. Their hearts were not prepared to receive the Christ. And Jesus says they were like children playing a game. Look back at verse 32. It says, we played a merry, a merry song, but you would not celebrate. We played a funeral song, and you refused to mourn. What does that mean? What is that saying? Jesus' words, what does this mean? Well, John the Baptist came as an ascetic, and his lifestyle challenged your life. And you said he's crazy, he's extreme, fanatic, and you assigned him to having a demon. Conversely, Jesus came eating and drinking and going to parties. You said he's a glutton and he's compromised. He's, he's made dirty by his associations. In other words, we sing a happy song for you and you say we're not serious enough. We sing a sad song and you say we're too morose. The reality is you don't want to play with us. What's the point? 
It doesn't matter how God approaches you. It is not a failure of the method. You've already made an advanced decision. You despise God's purposes for your life. You give no room for your doubts to be answered or to be addressed. So we see now in this section, we see this section here with a bird's eye view. We see John the Baptist's doubt, Jesus' response. We see the Pharisees' doubt, and now a different response. So what can we learn from this passage addressing our expectations of Jesus along with our doubts. I want to share three things this morning, three applications. One, I want to encourage all of us to inventory our expectations. Secondly, I want to encourage us to doubt our doubts. And then thirdly, I want us to encourage us to seek understanding. Okay? So I'm going to, for the rest of our time, roll through these three applications. First, inventory your expectations. We saw that how expectations intersperse with doubt. Now ask yourself this morning, what expectations do you bring into your relationship with God? What expectations do you bring into your relationship with God? And do they conform to reality? Do they match what we learn about God revealed in the Bible? Or have my expectations been shaped by my culture? Famous historian Daniel Borston suggests that Americans suffer from all too extravagant expectations. In his much-quoted book, The Image, Borston makes this observations of Americans. He says, we expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars, which are spacious, luxurious cars, which are economical. We expect to to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to a church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Never have people more been more masters of their environment. Yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed. For never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. Is it possible that your approach to God has been built on the wish that God exists for me. He exists to serve my needs, make me happy, comfortable, and well-adjusted. Is it possible that your vision of love means the absence of suffering and comfort at every turn? Is it possible that your view of justice Your emotional commitment to fairness has been shaped more by Western individualism than the Word of God. If you had grown up in a third world country, how would your expectations of God or of justice be different? 
uh, Lori Ferguson. She's an author. She's a blogger. She's a millennial. And she writes very perceptively about her own struggles with doubt. And she writes to represent her generation as a millennial, but I think she captures the spirit of this age. I'd like to read a sample of what she's written about doubt and our expectations. In the context here, she's reflecting on how she has found solace, not in receiving actual answers to her questions, but by leaning into the character of God. She wrote this. She wrote, the answer to doubt is God. The answer to our questions about tithing, membership, gender roles, politics, sin, and any other aspect of life that gives us pause is God. The blight of our generation is that we believe we are God. And now, here you can capture this on the, on the slide behind you, very perceptive statement here she makes. It's a young woman. I'm very impressed with her perception. She writes this, In Purgatorio, from Dante's Divine Comedy, it is said that the root of every sin is a disordered love. And she writes, We are the most disordered, ill-prioritized generation yet. It should be no surprise that we laud doubt, loathe decision, and critique certainty. We can't abide anyone who knows what is best, gives what is best, does what is best, and is what is best because it illumines the reality that we are not best. Tremendously perceptive on her part. This is what happens, by the way, when any concept of authority is lost on a culture and all you're left with is each individual as their own authority. This is what you're left with. Question every decision. Critique certainty itself. Nobody can give me what is best. Nobody can do what is best because it illumines the reality. It encroaches on my self-sense of my authority and my, my thoughts on, my, and my thoughts and perspective. You see, the Bible says that God loves us with an eternal love it also teaches that we have been created by God, through God, and for God. We are His workmanship. We exist for Him. And so when you're struggling with doubts, one of the first things to ask or do is to inventory your expectations. Are my expectations really correct about who God is and His purposes in my life? Here's the second one. Doubt your doubts. To doubt is not the suspension of belief. To doubt is not the suspension of belief. To doubt is actually to replace one belief with another belief. This phrase, doubt your doubts, as many of you know, comes from Tim Keller. And his book on this subject is called, or it comes from the book, Making Sense of God, a book I would highly recommend if you're struggling with doubts. Some years ago, Keller writes, a man began attending our church, and he had begun life with a general belief in God, but like so many in college, his faith was assailed, and he had lived for decades without any religious faith. After a number of months of attending our congregation, he told me that faith in God was looking much more 
plausible or believable or credible to him. When I asked how that was happening, he said a turning point had been a talk he heard me giving on doubting your doubts. He said, I never realized there had to be some faith under my doubts. And when I looked at the things I did believe, I discovered I did not have good reasons for them. When I started to examine some of the basis for my doubts, faith in God didn't seem too hard. Now, let me give you two illustrations of what it means to doubt your doubts. For example, one source of doubt that many people have is when a, when a believer, a strong believer, a good person, so to speak, suffers horribly for no good reason. Now, when we doubt, what's really going on here? Keller writes this. He says, this doubt stems from a belief that if we human beings can't discern a sufficient reason for an act of God, if we can't figure out why God would do something, then there cannot be any. You follow the train of thinking? If we can't discern it, then there is no good reason. My friend came to realize that this belief assumed that if there was an infinite God, a finite mind should be able to evaluate his motives and plans. In other words, we judge the judge. He asked himself how reasonable it was to believe that, to have confidence in his own insight, and at that point his doubts began to erode. Here's a second potential source of doubt, and that is thinking about the basic unfairness in our worldview, the basic unfairness of the doctrines of hell and salvation. Now this doubt, Keller's friend, largely came from the underlying beliefs of his culture. But he had a Chinese friend, and his Chinese friend said this, if God did exist, God certainly would have a right to judge people as he saw fit. If there was a God, he certainly would have the right to judge those as he saw fit. Keller's friend realized that his doubt about hell was based on a white, western, democratic, individualistic mindset that most other people in the world don't share. So to insist that the universe be run like a Western democracy was actually an ethnocentric point of view. Keller gives other examples of this equally thought-provoking. So the point is, if you are struggling with doubts this morning, think about the beliefs that underlie those doubts, what you've replaced them with, and do they hold up? Are those beliefs sustainable. Here's the third application, and that is to seek understanding. What do I mean by this? Notice what John the Baptist does. Let's go back to what the, to the text now. Notice what John the Baptist does when he had doubts. You see what he did that the Pharisees don't do when he had doubts. You see it? He looks to Jesus for clarification. He looks to Jesus for clarity. 
He did not assume he could arrive and figure it out on his own. He had faith in God, but he wanted solid reasons for his faith. Anselm, one of the great church theologians writing in the 11th century, said faith seeks understanding. Faith looks for reasons to believe. Augustine, writing in the 4th century, said something very similar. He said, believe that you may understand. This is exactly what John the Baptist does. He reaches out to Jesus, giving him space to answer his doubts. He does not retreat into himself with the underlying belief that through his power of reason, he could solve the crisis. This is why Jesus honors his doubts. And conversely, why the doubts of the Pharisees are criticized. They were not seeking real answers. For the Pharisees, there was no new approach. There was no new evidence that could persuade them. So, inventory your expectations. Doubt your doubts and seek understanding as you wrestle and struggle with your own doubts. Now, let me conclude by looking and finishing on verse 28. Look at verse 28. And when we're done here this morning, we're going to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection through the bread and through the cup. But let's not miss this really significant thing that you might have said, what does that mean? Verse 28, Jesus says, John is the single greatest human being that ever lived. What is that, hyperbole? What's he saying? He also said that the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Why the contrast? Well, I think there is great irony here in Jesus' comparison. You see, greatness here is not connected to character or to accomplishment, but to position and standing and blessing. John is a bridge between two worlds. One foot stands in the old world, the Old Testament, that of the priesthood, that of the sacrificial system, the law. And then one stands in the new world, that of grace and forgiveness. And the Spirit residing in everyone and abiding in the presence of Christ through the Spirit. One foot stands in the new world, one foot stands in the old world. The greatest in the old, even as one as great as John, did not experience the amazing glories of the new. Jesus means to show how great the new kingdom is that he's establishing in comparison with the old. All the Old Testament pointed to this. It is now fulfilled in Jesus. Everyone in the new now experiences the story of Jesus as a concrete fact of history. And with it comes the inner confidence that my sins are completely wiped away. I don't need any annual sacrifice to remind me. I can come before God with boundless confidence and freedom like a child to their Father. The cross and the resurrection bring the glories of the new kingdom and what we experience. And Jesus says, it's as if those in the new kingdom are greater than the greatest of the old.
And lastly, I would say this. Lastly, I would say this again about doubt. I would say that perhaps, and not even perhaps, but I believe strongly that the cross and the resurrection actually address perhaps your greatest doubt. Elie Wiesel was a survivor of the dreaded Nazi concentration camp Auschwitz. He wrote of his experiences in the book The Night. And in that book, he relates the harrowing story of two Jewish men and a Jewish boy hanged alongside one another. Having mounted the stairs, the two adults cried, Long live liberty! But the boy was silent. Behind Wiesel, someone desperately asked, Where is God? Where is He? The chairs the victims were standing on were kicked out from under them, and the three hung there. The adults died quickly, but the boy's weight wasn't great enough to snap his neck immediately. For more than half an hour, he hung there, dying in slow agony before their eyes. Again, Wiesel heard the question, Where is God now? And standing there, Wiesel heard a voice within himself answer, Where is He? Here He is. He is hanging here on this gallows. When Wiesel said it was God, it was God hanging on the gallows, he indicated the death of his own faith. Faith in God died with that hanging child. But there's another interpretation that God suffers with those who suffer. That God answers every human act of injustice. And it is most visibly seen in the death of Christ hanging in His own gallows, the cross. Jesus answers evil and suffering by taking it on to His own person on the cross, dying for it. But that's not the end. Through the resurrection, He proved He had overcome evil and that He has the power and will make all things right and new again. He will rectify every wrong. One scholar believes actually this word rectify is actually the more accurate word than even the word justify. God will rectify. He will make all things right through the power of the cross and the resurrection. So will you allow this morning, the question for all of us is, will you allow a God who dies for you, who resurrects for you, who will restore justice to the world to address and answer your most challenging doubts? Let's pray. And we'll begin to move into the celebration of that very death and resurrection through the bread and through the cup. Father in heaven, thank you for our moments together this morning. Thank you for the beautiful story of how you address this dear man's questions and this dear man's struggles. May we follow his example. And may we, like John the Baptist had to be, 
be led to the cross. And then an empty tomb. Where human suffering and injustice finds an eternal answer. In the love of a God who gives unbelievable freedom, but has also promised to come back and to return and to make all things right, make all things new. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and give thanks this morning. Amen.